podcast. This week's book club offering is As You Like It, a dose of pure escapism, Shakespeare's version of what Polonius might have called pastoral comical. Pastoral was a genre that had its origins in Greek poetry. Even back in ancient Athens, those who lived in the city wrote charming poems about how romantic it might be to live in the country. The pastoral had something of a revival in England in the late 16th century, when life in London grew ever more cramped and squalid and the notion of good air out in the country must surely have seemed very appealing. Shakespeare did not invent the story of As You Like It. He adapted and expanded it from a prose tale by Thomas Lodge called, would you believe, Rosalind. This was written in 1590 and it was very popular. Shakespeare's version is considerably less violent and considerably more charming. It's quite fascinating that this play emerged in 1599 at around the same time as he was writing Julius Caesar, Henry V and Hamlet, considering its total difference in tone from the other three. As You Like It starts off in a nebulous court, most likely in France. We're introduced to two sets of brothers, neither of them behaving very well at all. First we meet Orlando, who is fed up with his older brother Oliver, who hasn't done a great job of caring for him or raising him properly. In fact, we soon learn that Oliver absolutely hates his brother and is arranging to have him killed in a wrestling match. Orlando is one of the few names that Shakespeare adds. The hero in the Thomas Lodge story has a different name. Despite the pastoral setting, As You Like It is a very literate play, chock full of references to literature and mythology. The name Orlando is most reminiscent of Ariosto's hero in Orlando Furioso, a character who raged across much of the known world in a fit of jealous madness when he saw his lady's name written on slips of paper in a forest. Shakespeare's Orlando is quite the opposite. He's charming, brave when necessary, but kind of born to be mild. And, as we'll see, he writes his beloved's name on papers throughout the forest. I think it's some kind of a literary joke that Shakespeare must have enjoyed. In this apparently French court, the man in charge is Duke Frederick, who has usurped control from his older brother, Duke Senior. This older brother has decamped to the forest of Arden, along with a few of his supporters. The story goes that there they live like the old Robin Hood of England. Robin Hood was another example of a popular pastoral figure, the idyllic community living at one with nature, away from the cruelties of court. The Duke and his merry men are having a great time in the forest, as they did in the Golden World. This description of a golden world appears to be a direct quotation from the poet Ovid, who describes the ages of man, listen out for this phrase, in terms of metal. The golden world, the pastoral, happy, idyllic one, is long in the past. The world we live in now, and the reason I mention this, Ovid describes as an iron age. In that hard age, of baser vein, all evil straight broke out, and honour fled and truth and loyalty, replaced by fraud, deceit and treachery, and violence and wicked greed for gain. Friend was not safe from friend, nor father safe from son-in-law, and kindness rare between brother and brother. 
which, thank you Ovid, sounds not unlike Duke Frederick's regime. Shakespeare definitely gets us off to a good start with that. Brothers Killing Brothers will continue in Julius Caesar, in a manner of speaking, and definitely in Hamlet, as we well know. Of course, brothers only make up half of the world's people. There are sisters, too. Conveniently enough, each of the dukes has a daughter. Very conveniently for Shakespeare's all-male acting company, neither of the dukes appears to have a wife. Perhaps in this absence of mothers, the two daughters, cousins, have grown up together and are described as dearer than the natural bond of sisters. Rosalind is the daughter of the banished duke, and Celia is the daughter of Duke Frederick, the baddie. We probably already know that Rosalind is going to be the heroine, since, after all, the source material bears her name. Just as we're getting our bearings in this court, as we hear a lot of talk of what it is to be a man and how one is raised and the like, it's time for a wrestling match, of all things. Orlando, the younger brother, is due to compete with Charles the wrestler. All evidence suggests that this is a dreadful idea, and Charles himself has spoken with Orlando's brother to try to dissuade him. The dastardly brother instead encourages Charles to do his worst. But, surprise, surprise, Orlando wins. He's likened to a young Hercules, but rather than being the son of Jupiter, he has to explain to the Duke that in fact he's the son of Roland de Bois, an enemy of the Banny. As a result, instead of being celebrated for his win, he's banished. Before he even has time to pack, he does manage to have a quick chat with Rosalind, and naturally enough, he falls madly in love with her, and she with him. Moments later, we see that the Duke is on a banishing spree, and he decides it's also time to give Rosalind the boot, since her father, his brother, is another enemy. Rosalind decides to go find her father, but since it's dangerous out there for a young lady, she'll dress as a boy. Celia, her cousin, closer than a sister, remember, happily volunteers to come along, but she'll just change her appearance a little bit and stay a girl. For good measure, they enlist the court clown, Touchstone, to come along with them. Celia is quite the optimist, insisting that now we go in content, to liberty and not to banishment. This is a whole lot of exposition, all of it taking place in the court and around it, but it's basically the setup for the rest of the play. There isn't much story to come, to be honest. All of the principals decamp to the forest, and it becomes a place of infinite possibility and freedom, as Celia insists. Orlando travels with an old man, Adam, who cannot bear not to go with him. He's a far more caring figure than Orlando's own brother, despite being almost 80 years old. Apparently, Shakespeare himself played this part in the play. Once we get to the forest, all is charming and sweet. Well, almost all. First up, we meet the Duke Senior, who is introduced with, I think, one of the loveliest speeches Shakespeare ever wrote. Now, my co-mates and brothers in exile... Hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we but the penalty of Adam, the season's difference, as the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, this is no flattery. 
These are counsellors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. The word sweet appears over twenty times in this play. They're all delighted with themselves and the new community that has developed here in this forest. No accident, by the way, that it's called the Forest of Arden. It might tentatively refer to the Forest of the Ardennes in France, but Shakespeare's mother was Mary Arden, and the abiding feeling of his pastoral landscape is of charming English woods. To counter all of this sweetness, lest we have honey as a sauce to sugar, Shakespeare gives us a melancholy hanger-on called Jaques. Perhaps he would be called Jacques if it was in real France, but again this is an English version of France. Jaques is a little like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, almost impossible to please, but indulged and welcomed by his community nonetheless. He is enormously entertained once he encounters the other clown, Touchstone, and manages to find some delight in this strange figure who arrives with Celia and Rosalind. Of course, Rosalind cannot keep the name Rosalind once she's dressed up as a boy. Shakespeare has her pick a new name, and she picks Ganymede. In yet another classical allusion, she takes this name from the page boy to Jupiter, a beautiful young man who was plucked up to heaven to serve the god. Shakespeare is messing around with perceptions here. Ganymede was a pretty standard term for a beautiful young man who was found attractive by an older man, and so he's playing with the convention. In his theatre, the character would have been performed by a boy player. So, here we have a boy playing a girl who dresses up as a boy again. And it will get even racier. As soon as Ganymede meets Orlando in the wood, and gently mocks him for writing love poems to someone called Rosalind everywhere, he, or she, insists that he can cure Orlando of this madness if he will call her Rosalind and try to woo her. Are you confused yet? Don't worry, that's part of the fun. Shakespeare is being very daring here, playing with our perceptions of all of this. We know that the actor is a boy, but we very quickly let that go and let Rosalind just be Rosalind, and so even though we know all of the tricks, it's still sweet to watch her, quote-unquote, flirt with Orlando and try to get him to woo her as a boy. The bigger question is whether or not Orlando knows it's Rosalind. If he does, he's a great sport, playing along with her fizzy ruses and playful schemes. If he doesn't, it's a little more curious. He has this enormous passion for the Rosalind he met at court, and now, in the magical space of this forest, this whip-smart young man is running rings around him and interrogating all of his passions. They aren't the only would-be couple in the wood. Touchstone, the clown, falls rather quickly for a goat herd called Audrey. While he attempts to make clever jokes about Ovid, again more classical allusion, and Ovid's exile to the Goths, which Shakespeare probably pronounced like goats, Audrey points out that she doesn't even know what poetical is. If Jaques is sour in this sweet forest, then Touchstone is definitely salty. 
He wants to have sex and quickly and tries to arrange a local parson to marry him to Audrey. It doesn't work. Obviously, nobody gets married in a Shakespeare comedy until the end. Elsewhere in the Glades, we also meet a shepherd called Silvius, who's passionately in love with a shepherdess called Phoebe. Even more classical names. Silvius means of the forest, and Phoebe was a very common Greek name for hamadryads and other such comely maidens. Unfortunately, Phoebe doesn't love Silvius back, and as she tries to avoid him, Rosalind interrupts and tells her she could do a lot worse. While this plucky young man, she thinks, is lecturing her, Phoebe falls madly in love. So now we have Phoebe in love with Rosalind, who's in love with Orlando, who's in love with the image of the Rosalind he misses, while poor Silvius pines for Phoebe. Again, there's the question of whether Phoebe is in love with an effeminate man or a masculine woman. Modern productions elasticate this potential very often. But what of poor Celia, who came along on this adventure and set up house with Rosalind in the forest and now has to play second fiddle while Rosalind spends every possible moment mooning over and talking about Orlando? Well, Shakespeare doesn't leave her on the shelf for long. Instead, we meet Oliver again. He's been sent by the evil Duke Frederick to find Orlando in the forest. Into this Eden, which already has an Adam, remember, we now get a snake. For reasons we probably don't need to know, Oliver decides to take a nap. And during this, Orlando spots a snake preparing to attack his brother. Just as Orlando stops the snake, it transpires that there's also a lioness in the bushes nearby, and she attacks Orlando, presumably to protect her young. I suppose if there can be tigers in Rome, why shouldn't there be lions in France? As Oliver wakes up and sees his brother risking his life to save him, he instantly changes his ways. Everyone seems to change in this forest. Oliver is rewarded for his new outlook by instantly falling in love with Celia, and she with him. By now we have two couples, Touchstone and Audrey, ready for marriage as quickly as possible, and Celia and Oliver. Orlando sweetly says he's happy for his brother, and just wishes he could be with Rosalind. At this point, our heroine explains that she can do some extraordinary things, and promises that if he's really serious, she will arrange things so that he can marry Rosalind the following day. Phoebe is still mooning over her, but Rosalind assures her that by tomorrow she won't want to marry Ganymede any more. It all comes together with a magical guest appearance by Hymen, the Greek god of marriage, who introduces Rosalind when she reappears in her female form. She's reunited with her father and with Orlando, who is delighted that he gets to marry her. Since Phoebe does not indeed want to marry her, since she is, after all, a girl, she settles for Silvius, who has loved her all along. It does somewhat trouble me that poor Silvius is winding up with a partner who shows so little interest in him. The reward for his unwavering faith is a partner who accepts him because there's no better option. Maybe this is one of the sweet uses of adversity, I don't know. There wasn't too much choice in the countryside, so couples just made do? Who knows? Now that all four couples are reunited, it couldn't possibly be any happier, right? But wait, a third brother appears. This is another Du Bois, brother to Orlando and Oliver. He brings news that the bad duke was on his way to attack them all in the forest, 
but then he met a holy man and changed his ways completely. Another change within this mad forest. The Duke Senior can have his court back, and everyone can return to the good life away from the forest. All except Jacques, mind you. He is intrigued at the idea of someone who could make the bad Duke put on a religious life and throw into neglect the pompous court. He decides to go and find out more. A new path, away from all this toothache-inducing happiness. The Duke gets what we think might be the last words of the play. Proceed, proceed. We will begin these rites, as we do trust they'll end in true delights. And that might be that. But there's an epilogue. Rare enough in Shakespeare to be interesting, but not so rare as to be extraordinary. We have, after all, seen other ones, and there are more epilogues to come. Rosalind steps out, perhaps from the jig, to address the audience. And with one final flourish, we see Shakespeare stirring the pot of gender confusion all over again. The key word is, I think, that Rosalind says, My way is to conjure you. She told us already that she's been conversing with a magician since she was three, and here again she weaves her magic. It can be as simple as a pact to which we all swear. The literal meaning of conjuring is to swear together. Or it can be that she is weaving her spell over the whole theatre. Both work out quite nicely for a play that is all about performance and potential and trying new things and changing and the power of the word if. Much virtue in if, as Touchstone has told us. Remember that this was one of the early plays performed at the Globe, Shakespeare's company's own theatre, their own magical wooden O. When Jaques jokes about fools gathered in a circle, it was a direct reference to the shape of the theatre. Later, when Jaques gets to launch into one of the play's most famous passages, it is a knowing, glowing speech for an actor in that theatre. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. Now, I don't propose to take you through all seven ages in Jaquie's gloomy glory, but I would draw your attention to Shakespeare's own constant insistence on life. At the end of Jaquie's speech, which might come off a little sour, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything, Orlando re-enters, with the eighty-year-old Adam maybe in his arms. I think there's something gloriously cheeky, if the story is true that Shakespeare played Adam, in Shakespeare himself being carried onto the stage directly after another actor delivers what he must have known was a very, very good speech. Directly after this description of great old age, we see that this Adam, in this Eden, may have lost his Eve along the way, but he is still cared for. He will be fed and tended, and surely this is something. He has not lost everything, because, as the Duke told us much earlier, there is good in everything. Next week, we return to the madcap, glorious world of Falstaff for Henry IV Part Two. The treatment of old men by their juniors in this play is rather different from the Forest of Arden, I can tell you that now. I hope you have a lovely week ahead and that you're safe and well, and I'll speak to you next time.